Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. This morning's sermon is the second in a two-part series called Ready and Waiting, the message of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. You remember that at the close of 1 Thessalonians last week, Paul uh, had this interesting line at the end of his book where he held his readers an oath to read the book before the congregation. We read the whole thing before we were done. We're going to read the whole book of 2 Thessalonians before we're done this morning too. I need to give you a heads up that if last week's sermon focused on the joy and the glory of Jesus' coming, this week's sermon is quite sober. It focuses largely on what will happen before he comes. We'll start this morning by reading... Uh, Chapter 1, just verses 1 through 4, Paul's opening greeting and thanks to God for his readers. Hear God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because of your faith. It is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Well, last week we said that you can learn a lot about a person by what they're waiting for, their hopes, their dreams, their desires. We can learn a lot about the nature of what we're waiting for and the strength of our hopes by what we do in waiting, by what we do and are busy with in the meantime. A bachelor with a dump for a pad is not eagerly waiting for a wife. A 19-year-old headed into the military running 10 miles a day is eagerly awaiting boot camp. And he'll complete it with success. So what should be true of Christians as we wait for Jesus to return? How does the nature of his coming and the certainty of our hope shape our lives in the meantime? What are we to do in the meantime? And really that's the question that the whole of the New Testament answers. It's written to people who are living between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return in glory. But in this letter, Paul writes to these Christians at a specific time and in a specific place with specific answers to that question to help them live faithfully and to wait well for Christ to return so that they might be ready. And to set the stage a little bit for the rest of the letter, let's remember the context. As we read here, we see that they are suffering persecutions. Two things haven't changed. Their faith is growing. Their love is increasing. Remember that from last week. And they're still steadfast under persecution. And that's good news. It's good that Paul can write that. Church, of course, was born in conflict. They believed the gospel and it's like a grenade went off. Apostle Paul shows up in Thessalonica, a prominent city, preaches in the synagogues for a few days. People were getting converted. Here's what Acts 17 gives us for a report of what happened next. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Paul and Silas were sent away by night. Their time with this young church plant cut, unfortunately, and sadly short. Paul had taught them much in his short time with them, but there is much left to teach, and so we have these great letters in the providence of God. And as we'll see as the letter unfolds before us this morning, the framing perspective of this letter is the same perspective of the first letter, and that is the return of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. And while our circumstances are not the same and our theological confusions are not the same, this letter is no less important for us as it was for them. And so it should be our prayer that our vision, as Paul wrote, to make their vision more clear of Christ's coming and what would happen in the meantime, that God would do the same for our vision of Christ 
here at Desert Springs Church today. Christ is coming. He is coming. But he's not here yet. So what are we to do in the meantime? He gives us three answers. We're to take comfort, we're to take up the word, and we're to take action. Three chapters and three points. So let's dive in. First, what are we to do in the meantime? We're to take comfort for justice is coming. We are to take comfort for justice is coming. The church needs comfort, that's for sure, and it's, a, it's one of the main reasons Paul writes. Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. It's his prayer for them. And no doubt their hearts were helped to hear his commendation in the beginning of the letter, even to say that we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith and persecution. What an honor to hear that from Paul. What a comfort. But there is a kind of medicine that is needed for their circumstances that goes beyond meaningful words of commendation, which are necessary, but they are not all that's needed. You see, these Christians live in a world with a certain cognitive and theological dissonance. They live in a world where they believe in a God who is just, and yet they are afflicted and persecuted and some killed at the hands of his enemies who get away with it. Where is God and how does this work? It's like watching a movie and being stuck in that moment of greatest tension. You hate it, but it's, you've got to have it for a good movie. And the author always resolves it. Or you, or you balk about the thing and, and tweet about how bad of a movie it was. The resolution's very important. You know it's coming. And you endure the tension. But imagine just living inside that. Well, they're living inside it. Surely the author of this, of history, will resolve the tension. Will make things right. Well, this tension does need an answer, and Paul knows this. They need more than sincere commendation. They need a solid theology. So in the rest of chapter 1, Paul comforts them in the present with a theology of the future. He comforts them in the present with a theology of the future. He comforts them with a vision of the coming justice of God. Verse 5 and 7 are a summary of the whole chapter. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Here Paul comforts these Christians and us with a vision of God's coming justice in two ways. The second we'll look at has to do with his justice to their oppressors. The first we'll look at is not so obvious, but it is there. He comforts them with the justice of God that will come toward God's people, that God will bring toward his people. When he says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, he's referring to the evidence outlined in his greeting. Their faith, their love, their steadfastness under persecution. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It is encouraging evidence that God will judge them worthy of the kingdom when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. He's saying, be comforted, be comforted. You're persecuted now, but clearly, look at your life, you belong to him. You're enduring, you're believing, your love is growing. Sweet words in suffering. Reminds me of Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you were to put all of the suffering in one side of a scale and all of the glory on the other, the glory would make the suffering look as nothing, as light and as momentary as it is. Hard to see from the perspective of this world, but we believe it from God's word. It's as great as the glory will be for us. We'll be counted worthy of the kingdom. And so Paul also prays at the end of this chapter precisely what he wants for them. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for every good work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise that they may be made worthy according to God's grace. 
Or as Jesus put it, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were reviled, they were reviled, you were being reviled, but you will be relieved. But even now, rejoice, for you will be more than relieved, but you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom. Blessed are you. So verse 5 is a comforts us in the basis of God's coming justice to make us worthy of his kingdom. Then verse 6 comforts us on the basis of God's coming justice towards those who harm us on account of Christ. Towards those who harm us on account of Christ. Look at verse 6. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. We don't usually think of the wrath of God as a comforting doctrine, do we? Certainly not when we're under it, but not even most of the time when we're not. For those of us for whom Jesus has taken the wrath for us if we've trusted him in faith. It's part of the reason we take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations and weep for them. We don't want to see anyone under God's wrath. It's part of the reason Paul went to this church. Yes, for God's glory. Yes, out of obedience, but also out of love. Remember the affectionate language in the first letter and at the beginning of this letter for this church. People are a huge part of the equation. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God's glorious love is on display in the display of his love towards sinners. He loves sinners. It's true that God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. But the wrath of God is good. And its promise is, in one important sense, a comfort, truly a comfort for Christians. It certainly was for those living in Thessalonica with the real consequences of Christian faith. He says God considers it just to repay these people. God isn't capricious. He's not, um, not easily angered, as the scripture says. He's not out of control or unreasonable. This is a settling of an important score, a controlled strike based on perfect intelligence. Those who fight God lose. They lose. What kind of repayment is this? Well, apparently as a way of adding to their comfort, Paul felt it necessary to reflect for a few lines on the nature of the suffering that these attackers will know. Verse 7 through 9, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Here's what we learn about the vengeance. It's personal through Jesus. It's eternal. There's no relief from it. This vengeance is destruction. And it's away from the presence and the glory of God. Yes, it's under the presence of God in the sense that it's under his personal wrath, but it's away from the glory of his gracious presence. Now, if these words aren't comfort to us, it may be helpful to remember the plight of Christians in other circumstances just this past year in our own world. In 2013, persecution around the world doubled from 2012, documented 2,123 martyr killings compared with 1,201 in 2012. Plenty undocumented, by the way. As many, at good estimates are, as 8,000 martyr killings. Killings explicitly on account of Christ. You want to remember Christians in Syria. 1,213 documented deaths alone last year. That's more than the documented total for the whole world in 2012. Syria is a dangerous place for Christians. 500,000 in Syria have fled for their lives lest they be killed. And for this reason, one writer at the BBC wrote that the Arab Spring is rapidly turning into the Christian winter. Also in Syria, a massacre took place in Sadad. Hope I'm saying that right. Home to an historic group of Syriac Christians. 14 churches destroyed. 45 Christians killed, including women and including children. Six found at the bottom of a well. 600 families that made up this community had fled from jihad into the desert, the safest place in the wilderness they could find. 
As one columnist put it, jihad followed them there. Also in Syria, one month earlier, in another region, Christians forced to convert to Islam or die. One man's last words with a gun at his head, I'm a Christian and if you want to kill me for this, I do not object to it. Don't know his name, but we'll meet him one day. Or Christians in Egypt, we should remember. 207 churches attacked in 2013, 43 destroyed. Or Peshawar, Pakistan. September 22nd, a Taliban suicide bomber killed 85 Christian worshipers. Or Nairobi, Kenya. Christians were targeted by Islamists in an attack that killed 70 in a shopping center. Gunmen gathered people together. The report is that they would ask them questions about Islam and if they didn't know the answers, they'd kill them on the spot. Evidence that they didn't believe in Allah. In recent years, nearly two-thirds of the population of Christians are gone from Iraq, either from martyrdom, martyrdom or having fled. Christians have been bombed, churches bombed. Christians have been raped, assaulted, tortured, kidnapped, beheaded, and evicted from their homes. And all of these died, those that died, on account of Christ. Here's a picture of a precious little girl on the cover of the important organization's publication, Voice of the Martyrs. She's got a cast on, half an arm. Beautiful little girl. Maybe three. Her village, about 2,000 lived there. One morning, Christians woke up to their neighbors packing their bags and then leaving. They'd gotten word. Christians hadn't. Later in the day, 300 men with swords and machetes return. Butcher, 500 people, including women and children. Chasing children even a quarter mile and hatcheting off their arms and their heads. Ruthless, ruthless. So just ahead of Christmas, one columnist wrote, Across the world there will be Christians this week for whom attending church services this Christmas is not an act of faithful witness, but an act of life-risking bravery. And it's not just in majority Islamic states that are the most that are the Christians are in danger. Hardly, North Korea. Christians there face the highest imaginable pressure. Make a wrong move, and your whole family may be hauled to concentration camps. There are no figures for North Korea because they're secrecy. And they may not be worthy Christians of King Jong Il's kingdom, but they will be worthy of God's if they're faithful. And one day we'll meet them who've died on account of Christ. So Paul writes, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire and inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Totalitarian dictators who murder their people and target Christians will suffer forever for it. Unless they turn. I'm not aware of one that has. Why is Albuquerque different? Simply because of the restraining grace of God and human government that was established on some very good and true ideas about human beings, their dignity, and their darkness. Life in this place means we have grown up without these kinds of threats. A blessedly safe and beautiful place uncommon to most in history and around the world. We should thank God for it, labor to preserve it, and steward this platform for the gospel for as long as we have it. As long as we have it. Preaching the gospel and flinging each other all around the world to do the same. So where is God in the slaughter of his people in other places? Where is he? Well, he's storing up wrath. And he's patiently waiting for many to repent. And he's giving us a window to preach the gospel. And he's sending his word out in love for sinners. Paul, by the way, was a killer of Christians. Did you know that? It's not too late for you. Your sins aren't too great. Paul wrote this letter, fully convinced, fully looking forward to the day when Jesus would return, which, by the way, will either be a good day or a bad day for you, one or the other. You may fear death, that's a scary thing. There's a lot to say goodbye to. Most of us, apart from the word of God, might just fear it for that reason, the unknown. The Bible makes it known. We will meet and be judged 
by Jesus. By Jesus. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he'll be glorified in his saints and he'll be marveled at among all who have believed. All who have believed. And on that day, our comfort will be realized in God's justice toward us who have been faithful and that will be considered worthy of the kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. And God's justice will be executed on those who have opposed his people and who have fought God. But those words about eternal wrath and Jesus' wrath are also for those who have not believed and obeyed the gospel. It will be a good day all the way or a bad day all the way, terrifying or you'll marvel. If you're thinking you're in trouble, you probably are. You probably are. But don't think there's anything you can do about it except trust a cross. Remember what Paul said in his first letter, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how how is that possible? Who died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. No one will be counted worthy of this kingdom. Counted worthy of this kingdom because they were good enough. They will be made worthy of God's kingdom on account of Christ. Proven worthy with their lives. You're not too far gone. Paul wasn't. And you aren't. I pray that you would find comfort in Jesus' coming and not terror. That you'd marvel at his coming when he does. So take comfort just as his coming. Whatever we may experience in this life, there's much comfort to be had in that promise. That's the first thing we do while we wait. In the meantime, as we take comfort for justice is coming. The second thing we do while we wait in the meantime is we take up the word for deception is coming. We take up the word for deception is coming. Chapter 2 begins with a warning about deception and falsified apostolic teaching about Jesus' return. Verses 1 through 3. Chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. There appears to be something like a frenzy at this church. They're shaken, they're alarmed. And what is it that shakes them? Why are they alarmed? Because of a deception that they have believed concerning Christ's coming. Somebody, a false teacher, perhaps somebody pretending to be an apostle or Paul, has told them, Jesus already already came. And they believed it. Now, I haven't been able to figure this out. I have no idea what it meant for them to believe that. I mean, how low do your expectations need to be of Christ's second coming Uh, to believe that he came while you're still being persecuted if you heard anything Paul said. But surely they were learning a lot of doctrine and a lot of Bible. And um, they think they've got a letter from the hand of Paul and they've believed it. They believe the false teacher is what they've done. They need to take up the word so they're not to be deceived. Maybe that's why when when Paul thanked them for their, thank God for their faith and their love, he didn't mention their hope in the greeting. Who knows? I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but maybe he's just being honest. Uh, they kind of lost their hope between the first letter and the second. How are they to be put at ease? How are they to avoid this kind of deception? Paul's prayer at the close of this chapter, he tells them what to do. Verse 13 and 15. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now this church is a Bible-based church. Remember what Paul said in his first letter? Chapter 2.13, we thank God for you constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word is at work in this church. And this church needs to keep working in the word. Now as much as ever, they need to stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught, which is the body of apostolic teaching, which is now our New Testament's. Hold fast to that which Paul handed down. This is what they need to do. Take up the word. Don't be deceived. 
But since they have believed the deception, Paul's going to take a chapter here to undeceive them. And we get to listen in. Christ has not come, he tells them, and he tells them why that is so. He says two things have to happen first. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless, one, the rebellion comes first, and two, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This word rebellion, same word for apostasy. It'll be an abandoning of the gospel and of the faith on a part of those who were a part of the church. A letting go of the Bible and its authority, a letting go of the cross and the atonement of Christ, and a rejecting of Jesus, a rejecting of Jesus and his cross, an apostasy from within the church, a rebellion. And he'll say that the man of lawlessness has come. A man of lawlessness has to come, probably out of the rebellion, probably one that he started. It's interesting that Paul will take almost one-third of his letter to describe this man. He wants us to be able to identify him. He wants us to be able to identify him. So let's listen carefully to his description so that we can avoid deception. This man, verses 4 through 12, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Quite a description. If the Bible is like a loaf of bread, this is one of the ends. Isn't it? You know the ends? Either eat those first, who eats them first? Anyone here eat the ends first? Oh. Or you eat them last, or you don't eat them at all. And that's a lot of us with this text. Some of us love this kind of stuff. Uh, Christy's got a grandpa. First dating, mm, 15 years ago maybe. First met, the, first met the grandpa and she briefed me. He's going to ask me questions about the end times. Every time we get together, I get all kinds of questions about all kinds of things I haven't thought through. He hasn't thought through them either. He's a wonderful, godly Christian man. And he loves talking about this stuff. So maybe you're one of those. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you eat it last. You know it's important. Maybe you just run from it. Well, it's for all of us. It's nutritious. This is for all Christians. It was for every Christian there. It's for every Christian who wants to be ready for Jesus to come back, which I hope is all of us. So how do we do this? Um, let's do four questions. Who is the man of lawlessness? What will he do? Who or what is restraining him? And when will this go down? First question, who's the man of lawlessness? He's a person. He's a man. Verse 3, the man. He's not an institution or a movement or a mood. He's a human being. Revelation describes a beast, which is the state. And this man is probably will be a political leader, one that comes from within the church. He's bad. He's a bad guy. That should be obvious enough. Look at his name, the man of lawlessness. And the law unto himself accounts to no one, not to God. The son of destruction, if destruction had a son, this would be his son. Words describe him this way. He's a puppet. He's Satan's man. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Ever watch a movie where there's a bad guy? And he's the bad guy. Surely he's the worst. And then you find out there's someone he's scared of. You know, there's a bad guy behind him who's bidding he's doing. Well, that's kind of like it is here. This man will be as bad as they get. He'll be worshipped. He'll perform wonders. Uh, He will lead the world in some fashion. But Satan stands behind him as as the ultimate enemy of humanity and of God. But who is he really, you're asking, right? Eh, Who is he really? Like, what's his name? You're not the first to ask. You're not the first to ask. Across history, many have looked. 
at a leader in their age and said, that's the man, that's the guy. In one sense, they've been proven wrong. Jesus did not kill Nero or Hitler or the Pope. Uh, back in Reformation days, was called the Antichrist or others. And the way that it's described here, that he'll kill the Antichrist, the breath of his mouth. They're proven wrong. In another sense, they're proven right. John 1, 1, uh, 1 John 2.18 says this, Children in the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. That Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. There's one man coming, one Antichrist coming, but there will be many installments along the way. And Satan is always at work to destroy and deceive the people of God. He's got a way. And that way will show up around the world at different times and in different ways. The best way to know when we're, when we're looking at the real thing, the main one is to know what he'll do. So what will he do? It's the next question. What will he do? No surprise, he does the kinds of things that Satan does. He says he's God. Verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. And that's every man's story of those who have taken Satan's bait throughout history. Adam wanted to be like God. People after Noah's day who built the Tower of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves. Or the kings of the nations who set themselves up as gods. The Roman Caesar who required his worship. So he claims to be God. He impersonates God. He comes, verse 9, with all power and false signs and wonders. People will be very comforted and confirmed in their worship of him because of what he can do what he can do for them. Some might say you can't deny experience. Look. Yes, but you can be deceived by experience. And then he will be. He also lies about God. He comes, verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. He'll lead many from within the church and around the world astray. Paul mentions two things to come ahead of Christ, the rebellion and this guy. Now, this prophecy may seem a bit random. Is it random? Uh, Is it like most of the Bible's normal and then you got some of this stuff every now and then for a paragraph and it's back to normal? Or is this kind of part of the warp and woof of the Bible? Part of the warp and the woof of the Bible. Genesis 3, God's promise to crush the head of the serpent with the seed of the woman. Whole Bible story, Underneath it is a conflict between the serpent, Satan, and the seed of the woman, God's promised son, who will turn back the mess that Satan has made, save humanity. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God's seed and the enemies of God who would destroy it. Cain kills Abel. Cain's aligned with Satan. Abel's God's seed. He was accepted by God as worship was. Pharaoh killed Israel's young ones. Moses slips through. Enslaves Israel. God does the exodus. Gets them out of there. To demonstrate his power over Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar. Same story over and over again. We might say that God has patterns in his redemption plan and Satan has patterns in his destruction plan. The Bible begins with a conflict between God's Messiah, the the seed of Eve, and the seed of the serpent, and that's the story of the Bible. In Daniel 11, Daniel's prophecy, Daniel prophesies about a man that should sound familiar to us. This man, he says, will appear and profane the temple and set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Drawing God's people away, deceiving them. But the one that the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame. When they stumble, they shall receive little help and die alone. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. 
All that sound kind of familiar? It's right there in Daniel. Daniel's a tricky book. There it is. He defies God's temple and deceives many of his people. The faithful stand firm. They suffer and they're purified for it. He exalts himself as God and in the end the tables are turned. He went after the helpless and in the end he is helpless under the judgment of God at God's appointed time. There's a clear near fulfillment for this for those hearing from Daniel in 167 BC between our testaments Antiochus Epiphanes in Syria dedicated an altar to Zeus claimed to be the representative of Zeus and slaughtered a pig in the temple at Jerusalem devastated God's people. They would have seen in this event the fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied. But for all the devastation this man brought, he was only an installment in Satan's warring against the woman's seed, against God's promised Christ. He was an antichrist. At news of Jesus' birth, Herod tried to stamp out the promised Christ. These are all little a antichrists. Many have come. And in Matthew 24, we, we hear from Jesus and answer to his disciples' questions. They ask him, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Well, wouldn't it be nice to have three paragraphs from Jesus on that? Matthew 24. This isn't random. This is behind Paul's instruction. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken about by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Let him run. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't you believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And Jesus says then, no one knows the hour, only the Father. Stay awake. You don't know when the Lord is coming. Take up the word. Don't be deceived. The Bible story sits underneath Paul's words. And it's the perfect expectation for the pattern that Satan has sent in his destruction plan. And Jesus is coming as he does is the perfect expectation for God's pattern and his redemption plan. So what's the restrainer? What's holding this man back? We have no idea. We have no idea. No one has any idea. One verse calls it a he. One verse calls it a what. Some say it's the state. It's hard to imagine you know, Rome at the time restraining the man and that Rome was persecuting Christians and its leader was requiring worship. 
Some say it's the Holy Spirit in the church and that the church will be removed before a great tribulation. That's the restrainer that will be removed. Jesus seems to me in his text and Paul to want us to expect the very worst of what will come. And when Jesus comes, it will all be over. We're not saved from any of it. Can't tell what it is. But we know exactly what it is, actually, don't we? Who removes the restrainer? God. God stands behind this restrainer, whatever the restrainer is. He removes the restrainer, and after that, to those who followed the men of lawlessness, verse 11 of chapter 2, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So God sends them a delusion so that their deception may be complete. And after that, God will send his son in the clouds with a trumpet and angels will shout, he'll kill this man. With the breath of his mouth, Jesus will, and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. However big, however powerful, however wonderful, gone with the breath of Jesus' mouth. Take comfort in that. And when will this go down? Well, the rebellion will be subtle. There's always false teachers around. There's always false Christs around. But when the restrainer is removed, whatever it is and whenever that happens, it'll be clear to those of us who have taken up his word what is happening and we won't be deceived. And when Jesus comes back, according to his own words, we cannot miss it like lightning from the east. Remind you of Lord of the Rings? Paul wants us to be ready to identify this man. He doesn't know the day or the hour, and Jesus himself said only the Father knows. We sure don't. But we need to be ready for his deception and the destruction of God's people when it comes. There's enough at stake here, and the Bible seems clear enough to me that we should expect the worst, so I'm telling you to expect the worst and prepare for the worst. This is, this is New Testament Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity we're imparting to our children. If we won't be here for the worst... Our children or their children or their children will. Teach them a biblical Christianity from the Bible, which includes promises of persecution. So let's do two things as we take up the word. As we take up the word, let's think biblically about the times ahead of the second coming. Biblically about the times. They're hard. Our faith will cost us, our jobs, our reputations, maybe our lives, and we'll be counted worthy for enduring. Yes, Jesus wins in the end, and that's the main thing. It's the main thing. And future stuff in the Bible can be a little tricky, but it's important. Paul wants us to be ready to see Jesus win from the safety of his side, and for that we must be ready to suffer. So the future is worth thinking about. It's not just for some of us. It's for all of us. So as we take up the word, let us think biblically about the times, and let us think biblically about the timing of the second coming. Oh, I could uh, entertain you with illustrations of how this has gone down in the past. People setting dates, it not working out. What they said after it didn't work out. Selling houses, cars, it's so sad. And people are led astray by false teachers. Jesus said, don't set a time, look for a time. Expect to know the time. So let's just not. Let's just not. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to look for signs. Three kinds, signs of God's grace, the gospel going to the nations and many from Israel believing. Signs of hatred toward God, tribulation, people leaving the faith, the man of lawlessness. And look for signs of God's judgment, wars, earthquakes, famines. It's nothing new that false teachers would tell us false things about the coming of Christ. We have been warned. We have been warned. So take up the word. And don't be deceived. Take up the word and don't be deceived. What are we to do in the meantime? Take comfort. Justice is coming. Take up the word. Don't be deceived. Deception is coming. Now, take action. Jesus hasn't come yet. Take action. Jesus hasn't come yet. Now, there's great reason for comfort the end of chapter 2 and everything we've just heard, Paul prays for God to comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Oh, that's an, Paul likes to stop and pray because he needs to. And after writing that, he needed to stop and pray for God to comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word.
And now in chapter 3, he gives them some action items for what to do in the interim. So he did this in the first letter. Remember this, the last chapter or so was just a blast of commands. What to be busy about in the meantime. And here we have some more very practical, earthy commands. Tells them to be busy about doing good. The first thing we see that he wants us to do is to pray, though. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as is happening among you. He wants us to pray, and this is his first prayer request, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. Paul wants what happened in Thessalonica to happen in other places. And we should pray for the same, for the word of the Lord to speed ahead in Albuquerque, in Rio Rancho, through Redemption Church, through the work that is happening around the world that we're participating in, in Guatemala, North Africa, This is one way to pray. May the word of the Lord speed ahead. God, may what happened at Thessalonica, where these men and women believed in the risen Jesus and were persecuted for it and rejoiced in that persecution with endurance, may that happen in hard places. May the word of the Lord speed ahead. Second prayer request is to pray This, in verse 2, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Most of Paul's prayers regarding suffering, as we know, are for believers, for believers are that they would be made ready for heaven through it, that they'd be sanctified through it. In fact, he'll pray that in verse 3 through 5. The Lord is faithful, he'll establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing good, that you are doing and will do the things we've commanded. He prays, may the Lord direct your hearts to love the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He wants their hearts to be directed toward the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ in their suffering. But Paul prays for deliverance from wicked and evil men himself, which is fair. It's not very PC, by the way, but it is an accurate description of the people that he's oppressed by. In his first letter, he spoke of those who oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. Part of the reason there's such a problem and part of the reason Paul wants deliverance from them is so that he has the freedom to preach. You see, Paul prayed for the word to speed ahead and now he prays for deliverance from wicked and evil men in order that he might preach. What's wicked and evil about him? They oppose all mankind by hindering the gospel. So the gospel is underneath both requests here. Both requests, and we should pray to be delivered from wicked and evil men who oppose the gospel wherever they are. Shall pray against regimes that silence Christians by the abuse of state power. Should pray for the transformation of states that hinder the coming and going of the scriptures and the gospel. And so, in doing so, oppose all mankind. Where there's an open door, we should blast through it. And where there's a closed door, we should squeak through the cracks. Pray all, all along. This prayer is perfectly suited for our times. Until he comes, we should pray this way. And until he comes, we should do good. We should do good as we've read. Verse 13 of chapter 3. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This language of doing good shows up throughout the letter. But there's a specific application of doing good that is required for this church. And he spends a paragraph on it. You know, every church has got their thing, right? Um, When he says do good, it's basically like saying live a faithful Christian life or live a life commending the gospel. And there's one issue that requires surgery in this church, and that is the idol. In the first book he wrote, he said admonish the idol. Able-bodied, not working, depending, lazy, they're a problem. Paul writes them again now, because apparently it hasn't fixed itself, Instruct them as to how to address it. Now we command you, verse 6, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's, not walking in, who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil we labor, we work day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but, because, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. 
For even when we were with you, we hear that some of uh, uh, we, would, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So as Paul's letter ends with the very practical, so does ours. Paul's saying, work for food, and so we should work for food, the way God made the world. Let's raise kids that work hard. It's part of a spiritual life, not just going to church, but working hard. It's biblical to care for those in need. It's unbiblical to enable the lazy. If we want to eat, we should work. It's part of how God made the world. And secondly, we should help each other obey the Bible, and when necessary, uh, withhold food. When necessary, withhold food. Obedience to the apostles' command is the sin under the sin here. The lazy are not obeying. More importantly, what I'm after here is that we're responsible for each other between now and Christ's coming. Look at all the imperatives. Keep away from him. Let him not eat. Take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him. Warn him. And all this in love. The person's not an enemy, but a brother. Interesting. This is probably, that they probably latched on to uh, the false teaching. If Christ has come already, why work? That may have aggravated what was already a problem in the church. Such low expectations for the return of Christ that they could be deceived by a word that he's already come. For most of us, not working is not the problem. Maybe it's working like this is all we've got. And in that same respect, we too are demonstrating that we have low expectations for the return of Christ. So let's live together faithful Christian lives. Let's be busy about prayer and let's do good. Take comfort for justice is coming. Take up the word. Deception is coming. And take action. Jesus has not come yet. And with that, let's close our sermon with Paul's closing words. In verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this heavy letter just three chapters long and heavy. We thank you for the sobriety that it brings to this room and to our hearts this morning. We pray for a vision of Christ's glorious return that would be a comfort to us. And we also pray for a clear vision based on what you've revealed in scripture of what is to come before his return, namely persecution, many other signs. May we prepare for it and be ready for it when it comes. And Father, may we take, in the meantime, the gospel to the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.